You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Vera Bittner, President of the National Lipid Association. I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Alan Brown and presented by the National Lipid Association. Today our guest is Dr. William S. Harris, Director of the Cardiovascular Health Research Center, Sanford Health Systems in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Bill is going to talk to us today about the new Alpha Omega study and really talk to us about the importance of omega-3 fatty acids. This is something that's been in the news over many years in terms of whether supplementation or a diet rich in omega-3s is healthful, and more recently, some controversy based on data from a recent study. So, Bill, thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us today on Lipid Luminations. My pleasure. So can you tell us a little bit about which omega-3 fatty acids are important and what are essential and give us a little bit about the background chemistry about these compounds? Sure. These fatty acids are, of course, parts of the long-chain omega-3s. We call them EPA and DHA are part of fish oils. They're made originally not by fish, but they're made by single-celled organisms floating in the ocean that form the basis of the food chain, and then they just move up the food chain as the fish eat them. The other types of omega-3 are plant-based omega-3, and the primary example of that is alpha-linolenic acid, which is found primarily or most abundantly in flaxseed oil. We get a lot of it in soybean oil, which has about 8 or 10%. So those are the two. There's the plant and the fish-based omega-3s, and we think at this point that the plant omega-3 has not got the potency of the fish omega-3s, but that will be a topic for later in the, in the hour as we talk about the alpha-omega study. Bill, you know, there's always this discussion about whether or not everybody should have a certain amount of consumption of omega-3 fatty acids in their diet or whether it should be a therapeutic agent in people who have either high triglycerides or established cardiovascular disease. Is there any recommendation for how to incorporate omega-3s in the diet for the general population rather than those with cardiovascular risk? Right. With the general population, yes, the recommendations from the American Heart Association are that people without known coronary disease should try to consume at least two, preferably oily, and I always say oily doesn't mean deep fat fried in this case, oily fish, meaning salmon, mackerel, herring, sardine, albacore tuna, that's really the better of the two types of tuna for omega-3s. Two servings of meals of those types of fish per week is what the AHA recommends for people without known disease. That'll give you around four or 500 milligrams a day on average of EPA and DHA if you do that. For people with disease, twice as much is recommended, about a gram of omega-3. So as you know, we all have patients coming in with a lunch bag of supplements that is going to keep them healthy. Do you think that there's a difference in taking your omega-3 through oily fish that are high in omega-3 or supplemental capsules? You know, really with a focus on nutrition, I'd like to recommend fish as the source, uh, but there's a practicality there that is difficult to overcome. And we did look at the question of if you give the same amount of omega-3 as fish versus capsules, do you get the same rise in blood omega-3 levels? And we did find that they were equivalent. So um, I'd have to say that you can use, if you want to get your omega-3 levels up, you could use fish or capsules with equal efficacy. And when somebody goes to the store to buy omega-3 supplement capsules, are there things that they should look for to determine which product would be better to use? You should always look for the amount of EPA and DHA as a sum, the two of them together, 
per capsule. That's going to be not evident from the front. The front of the label will typically say 1,000 milligrams of fish oil. And that means that's true. It's 1,000 milligrams of fish oil, but that contains typically about 300 milligrams of EPA and DHA. So it's only 30% omega-3. You have to look on the back on the label to see how much EPA and DHA is there per capsule. Sometimes they'll say amount of omega-3 per serving, and then they'll define a serving as two or three capsules. So there's a little bit of math that needs to be done. But the goal is to see how many capsules you need to take to get you know, 500 to 1,000 milligrams a day. Of both DHA and EPA. Of the combined EPA plus DHA. At this point, we really can't say one of them is better than the other. So they come together in fish. That's the way they're laid out for us. We think it's better to have them together. So one of the common things that I see running a lipid clinic, and I'm sure you've had the same experience, is that patients are referred in by a primary who have not been able to tolerate statins, for example, and someone recommends to them that they take omega-3 fatty acids in the form of fish oil capsules. And, of course, their LDL goes up and don't necessarily achieve the targets. Somehow there's a conception that omega-3 is lower LDL cholesterol. So can you clarify for our listeners what the value in terms of the lipid profile is? That's exactly what happens. The value for the, of the omega-3s for the lipid profile is for lowering triglycerides. They are primarily in high doses and what we call pharmacologic doses. and That would be doses of 3 to 4 grams a day of EPA and DHA not three and four pills, three to four grams of EPA, DHA. So that can be 11, 12 or so of the most common fish oil supplements. That will have a triglyceride-lowering effect. It will not have a cholesterol-lowering effect. And you allude to the rise in LDL, and that is true. It has been seen, particularly to the extent that triglycerides drop, LDL can go up a little bit, particularly in a very hypertriglyceridemic patient. You'll see an increase similar to what happens with fibrates in those patients. So without getting too detailed, there's a lot of thought that this rise in LDL may not be detrimental because it's a larger, more buoyant particle. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, and I'd agree with that. And I'm not sure because it's a larger, more buoyant particle, but it's because I think the omega-3s have what used to be called pleiotrophic effects on cardiovascular risk, affecting many, many different systems so that the net effect is a reduction in risk regardless of what happens to LDL. All right. So here's where I get to hone down on the randomized clinical trials and what they showed. And I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about it. I mean, when I reviewed the GISI trial with the omega-3 fatty acid supplementation, it, it looked to me like most of the cardiovascular benefit was in sudden cardiac death, such as maybe there was an antiarrhythmic effect. And as you know, there have been some studies in patients with defibrillators that showed just the opposite, little higher discharges. So how do we sort it all out, and what do you think the overall results of the clinical trials show? The overall results, the three major trials that we think about, are there are two GISI trials. One is the GISI prevention, which was done in post-MI patients, GISI heart failure, which was done obviously in that group of people, and the JELUS trial, which was a large 18,000-plus patients with hypercholesterolemia done in, in Japan. In that latter study, there was no reduction in risk for sudden death. There was no reduction in total mortality, largely because in the former case, there's very little sudden death in Japan. And there was a statistically significant effect on a combined endpoint that included non-fatal cardiac events and hospitalization for angina. So the benefit was seen in that Japanese population. Part of the problem with that study is the fact it was done in a Japanese population. And the Japanese are eating about 8 to 10 times more omega-3 
as a population than we are. So they're right up there eating already that about one gram a day of EPA and DHA. So to add additional omega-3 and expect a big bang uh, is a little unrealistic. Uh, the fact that anything happens is kind of a, r- remarkable to me. In the GISI trials done in Italy, a completely different background diet, of course, there was a reduction in risk for sudden death, uh, which translated into a total mortality benefit because of the high uh, risk for sudden death there in that context, and which, as you suggested, leads to the arrhythmia hypothesis. Arrhythmia hypothesis is tested, I think many people think, in hindsight, inappropriately in patients with ICDs simply because it's a different kind of event when you have an ischemic event soon after an MI. It's a different thing than the kind of events that trigger an ICD to go off. So what do you think the mechanism of cardioprotection is? And, you know, you've alluded to some of the evidence, but are there any cellular models for the cardioprotection that we think was conferred in the GC trials? There actually are for animal studies as well as cell culture studies, as well as studies in humans that have shown that if you increase the omega-3 level in the cardiac myocyte, the cell becomes more resistant to arrhythmic symbols or um, stimuli. So we really do think that there is a reduction in risk for fatal arrhythmias because of a stabilization of the membrane. The omega-3 fatty acids become incorporated in the actual phospholipid bilayer of the membrane, and in so doing, they change the physical properties of the membrane so that the ion channels, other transmembrane receptor proteins operate in a different environment. They're a little more loosey-goosey, a little more flexibility with that, the omega-3s in the membrane. That affects their function. Beyond that, exactly why the omega-3s are beneficial in that context, I don't think we really drilled down. We do know from work in Australia that the heart beats with a greater efficiency of oxygen use when there's a higher omega-3 content. So we still have a lot to learn about how the omega-3s are doing. The cardiac benefits don't appear to be related to serum lipid and lipoprotein changes. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, your host. Our guest today is Dr. Bill Harris, and we're discussing the role of omega-3 fatty acids, not only for prevention of cardiovascular events, but also maintenance of health. One of the things, Bill, that we hear concerns about is whether omega-3 fatty acids cause significant bleeding. Is there any data that you have to worry about bleeding, and should they be stopped before an operation, for example? No, right. That's, I think, part of the urban myth of fish oils. It came out of the early days of feeding extremely high levels. We used to feed people 100 grams of salmon oil, 25 grams of fish oil. Even in that setting, we had a slight prolongation of the bleeding time, but not outside the normal range. But people have this idea that fish oils make you bleed because they affect platelet function. Well, it's been looked at time and time again in variety. I looked at 19 different trials in a recent review I wrote where there was a significantly high, a high 6 to 7 gram intake of omega-3 fatty acids around the time of some kind of a vascular, either, either surgery or PTCA or diagnostic cath variety of bloody procedures, and they couldn't find in any one of them any increased risk for clinically significant bleeding with the omega-3. And others have now reported the same thing. They've done prospective trials looking at that, and they cannot find any increased risk of bleeding. So that, I think, even though it's on the label of the prescription omega-3 product that's out there, I don't think it's a concern. All right. So while we put bleeding to rest, let's talk about the data regarding effect on blood sugar and the diabetic. That's something that we used to worry about quite a bit. Also, 
What's the data for helping other things that bother you, such as joint disease, arthritis? Yeah, right. And you're right. We did used to worry about the omega-3s exacerbating glycemic control, making it worse. And there were early data, again, with very high doses that sugars did go up. In intervening years of the last 20 years, there have been many studies done with the doses of around 3 to 4 grams or below. And that's the therapeutic range. That's certainly way above the nutritional range. But in that range, 3 to 4 grams, Montori and others have shown in meta-analyses that there is no effect of omega-3. There's no beneficial reduction in, in glucose. There's no rise in glucose. It's a neutral effect. There really isn't anything to worry about in terms of glycemic control. Other types of diseases you mentioned, you know, the joints, yeah, this is something to hear about a lot. I hear about a lot anecdotally when people are taking omega-3s for their lipids. They all of a sudden say their shoulder doesn't hurt anymore. And there is evidence from a variety of studies, mostly in Australia, that the omega-3s will, in pretty high doses, again, that 3 to 4 gram area, they will reduce inflammation in joints. The omega-3s are definitely anti-inflammatory molecules. And it seems to play out in joint pain. This needs to be studied a lot more. Okay. I've got only about one minute left, so I have a couple of quick questions for you. Number one, we worry about mercury contamination in the fish. Can you tell us a little bit about which fish we need to worry about and then a little bit about farm salmon versus wild salmon? And then lastly, about maybe measuring levels of omega-3 in the blood, and is there any clinical utility for that? Sure. There are four fish that the FDA has said have too much mercury, and you should avoid them if you're a woman trying to get pregnant, you are pregnant, or you're up to a two-year-old kid. And those four fish are swordfish, king, mackerel, tilefish, and shark. So those fish are the ones you want to avoid. Every other fish is fine. And since so few people eat those fish, the mercury issue is not an issue, in my opinion. Wild versus farm salmon, they have equal amounts of omega-3 per serving because the farm salmon are given omega-3 in their diet, just like the wild are. So the, the farm, if it's a cheaper fish, typically it's got as much omega-3, so it's a good source. And measuring omega-3, uh, that's something I've been very interested in, looking at omega-3 levels as risk factors in the same sense that a high omega-3 is like having a low cholesterol. It's good for you. And we have actually formed a company to offer a blood omega-3 test that we call the Omega-3 Index. And I think that is gaining some ground. It's something that predicts risk and also guides therapeutic care. Well, thank you very much for all your insights on this issue of omega-3 fatty acids and your insights on both the metabolic pathways as well as reduction in clinical events. My pleasure. We've been talking with Dr. Bill Harris discussing omega-3 fatty acids and its role in prevention of cardiovascular disease. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.